Hello, welcome back. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Emily. We're the executive directors and co-founders of ATX TV. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This week, and coming up through the end of 2021, we're releasing exclusive and original conversations from our Season 10 Festival that premiered in June 2021. Please enjoy this week's release and tune in both here and on youtube.com backslash ATXTV for even more TV goodness. Without further ado, here's this week's TV Campfire episode from Season 10 of ATX TV Festival. Enjoy. Hey, y'all. I'm Jennifer Morgan, the Director of Programming for ATX Television Festival. So excited to welcome you to Season 10, whether you're joining us um, for this panel specifically or if you've been with us for the last several days. Um, I hope you're having uh, a great festival, and um, I know that you're going to love this next conversation. We are very proud, as always, to partner with ACLU. We've been lucky enough to partner with them on several amazing conversations over the last few years, um, touching on everything from immigration and uh, social justice to criminal justice reform, and now television in an era of racial reckoning. Um, This conversation was very important to us, and these panelists are really incredible storytellers, um, as well as human beings, and we're very, very grateful to have them here tonight. Um, I'm going to let our moderator, Daryl, take it away in just a moment, but to find out more information about the ACLU, and specifically their systemic equality platform, please visit aclu.org and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter at ATX festival and share your thoughts with us um, with the hashtag TV for all. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the panel. Well, welcome everyone to the ATX television festival. My name is Daryl Ewing and I am the director of communications at the ACLU of Texas And I am so excited to be in this space today for our discussion, uh, especially in light of what's been an extremely difficult and impactful year. I mean, yesterday we marked the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And in that moment, we acknowledge the progress that has been made, but we also know that there is still so much work that has to be done. So today we're here to discuss the tangible impact that storytelling has on the world in which we're living in. And just for a little bit of context, we at the ACLU have recently launched our systemic equality agenda. This is our multi-year commitment to address America's legacy of racism and oppression. And this means that we are trying to build prosperity and that means addressing economic inequality Uh, We're focused on eliminating institutional barriers, whether those be in housing or internet and broadband access. And then we're also working to empower black voices by putting an end to the undermining of the political power of black people and black communities. And even with this work under the systemic equality frame, we know that uh, it won't come through just our work with policy, it won't come through our work with advocacy, it won't only come with our work in the courts. It also will require us to uh, reframe how people view black people, how people view black communities, uh, how they view some of the issues that we'll talk about today. And it really will happen through storytelling. 
And that's why I'm so excited to introduce our panelists today. Each of them, they play a critical role in shaping the stories we see on, on television, but they also share a critical role in how people view Black communities and Black people. So let me hop right in and introduce uh, our first panelist to the room, uh, K.O. Yagan, uh, who is a writer, a director, and a co-executive producer on NBC's hit drama series, This Is Us, and has pre previously written for shows like Queen Sugar on Oprah Winfrey's network. So welcome to the room, Kay. Hey, guys. Hello. Thank you, Daryl. Good to see you. Good to see you. Let me next welcome into the room little Marvin. He is the creator, he's the writer, he's the showrunner, he does it all. Uh, he's the executive producer of the original anthology series, Them, which just received a two-season order from Amazon. So welcome into the room, little Marvin. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Good to <laughs> see you. Thank you. Love the hat. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let me also welcome our next guest in the room, Monica Maser, who's previously been a writer and a producer for Genified and Queen Sugar, alongside her writing work on shows like Nashville and Lost, and so she'll bring a great network TV perspective to the room. So welcome, Monica. Good to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you, too. And then finally, let me welcome to the room Ashley Nicole Black. She's currently a writer and cast member on HBO's Black Lady Sketch Show. Uh, I smile when I say it because the show makes me smile. And she was previously seen on Full, Full Fronter with Samantha B. So welcome to the room, Ashley. Hello. Good to see all of you. And I, again, I'm just so excited to be in the room with this great group of panelists. And I think we're going to have a great discussion. Uh, and it will be a good discussion on how we continue and can continue the critical work of this past year, post-George Floyd and beyond, through the stories that you all are telling in the television and entertainment space. So just to get us started, let me uh, start broadly by asking a question for everyone. And we'll just kind of pop this popcorn around this to everybody on the panel. So as we know, we're currently in an inflection point moment in our country over racial justice and systemic equality. So the question is in the past, how have you all seen entertainment writers, the role of entertainment writers, showrunners, and creators like yourself in influencing positive outcomes in the world through your through storytelling? And then also let me ask that question further. How do you see your role uh, in that space moving forward? I'll start. I'll start. So in the past, I would say for me, you know, I broke in at, in the early 2000s. In like 2002, I got my first job as a writer's assistant on um, 24. And for me, it was a huge break. It was the second season. I never worked on a show where there was a black president. You know, President Palmer was putting it down. And, and when we talk about the influence that TV has on a culture and on a nation, I do believe that seeing President Palmer work with Jack Bauer to save the world and America, every episode helped prepare the subconscious of America to receive our first black president, Barack Obama. There were a lot of things in play, but I do believe that pop culture does influence. So for me, working on that as an assistant was like a, a game changer also because here I am, this little black girl, black and Asian girl, excited to be an assistant on a mainstream network show. 
And in the past, when you talk about the past and how it's shaped, that became possible because I was in a program that Fox had set up, the Fox Diversity Writers Program, that created a pathway for me to have an interview with the showrunners. Only people from the program were going to get the writer's assistant spot. And I luckily got the spot. Um, but it was because in the late 90s, those who came before us with the NAACP and an Asian American advocacy group protested outside of ABC and said, look, there's not enough people behind the camera. And that's how the ABC diversity program got started, which has launched a lot of careers and all the other diversity programs. Now for me, you said, so the past, and then now looking forward, for me, I sort of had a full circle moment this season running MacGyver. And a lot of people were like, why are you, why did you pick MacGyver? Cause you know, I ran Queen Sugar, very critically acclaimed. Kay and I are both alums of the Queen Sugar camp. And then I ran Hentified, which was a half hour uh, dramedy about a Latinx family in Boyle Heights trying to save their taco shop. Both had, both shows had something to say. And for me, it was like, little black Asian girl that was in the action rooms because I wrote action the first half of my career that wore jeans all the time, never got her nails done, wore t-shirts and jeans, tried to just be one of the boys. And now here I am almost 20 years later running a high octane action show for the oldest of the old school networks. And in terms of representation, getting a job that had nothing to do with me being black, Asian, or a woman was a profound statement in terms of representation. So I, you know, credit that to all of my mentors helping me get there, Jesus, and my friends praying me through the experience because those job, those opportunities are far and few between, but it was almost like the first half of my career and the second half lined up to make it possible. And then in terms of storytelling, even though we were an action show, I was very much, I'm still the writer who wrote Queen Sugar and Hentified. I still wanna say something. So we broke our missions in terms of what did we want the characters to feel. And our lead, Lucas Till, was going through a moment during Black Lives Matter and protesting and questioning his white privilege. And we wanted, he wanted to lean into that. And we as a show wanted to lean into that. And so we had an episode where they talked about he was out there protesting with Black Lives Matter because the two other two characters um, were his best friends, our African-American. And we also had our Asian-American character um, Desi say in an episode about the pandemic, well, I had to come home because someone sprayed Kung flu on my parents' garage. So even though we're an action, feel good, run and jump show, I'm still going to say something. So that's sort of the past and the present. Really powerful and well-received. Who, who else? Anyone else talk about the past and then how uh, your current work is shaping the future? Um, so I actually started my career as an academic. I was a PhD candidate at Northwestern, and I started out studying contemporary blackface minstrelsy. So sort of tracing the uh, tropes and forms that um, started with blackface minstrelsy, which was the first American art form. Uh, we did not have our own <laughs> plays and ways of performance until we invented blackface. 
uh, and sort of tracing how those tropes came into the comedy that we watch today. Um, and so I was studying the thing that I loved, but not doing it because I really felt like there was not a place for me as a plus size black woman in this world. And I, my parents bought me a class at the second city for Christmas. I went to the second city, I found sketch comedy. And in that tradition, the sketch comedy tradition, the performers write their own material. So once I was both the writer and the actor, I could represent my body in whatever way I wanted to. I could be the president. I could be the sexiest woman in the world. I could be a hot mess. I could be whatever. And the great thing about sketches, I could be all of those things in the same show. And so I went from studying how Black women are limited in representation and culture to finding an art form that allowed me to write and perform as limitless. And so it's both within the content of what I'm writing, but also within the form on um, Black Lady Sketch Show, that if you watch that show, I play, I wanna say 25 to 30 different characters over the course of the season. I dare you to think a plus size Black woman can only be one thing after you watch that show. So that is what I love about the form of sketch comedy. I know it's like a lowbrow art form, but I think even those popular lowbrow types of things can be incredibly ra radical and transformative because people turn it on just to laugh and those messages kind of sink in in the form and the content. Sure, sure. absolutely. Who else? I just want to say I love hearing these long journeys. These first of all, these are just amazing stories. So I feel deeply honored, particularly because this is the very first show I've ever created. Uh, it was my first time in the writer's room, and I was also the EP and the creator and the showrunner. So it was a very unique experience in just about every way. Um, I will say that Monica mentioned mentorship, and I think mentorship takes many forms. Sometimes it's just seeing yourself and realizing, oh, wow, they did it, I can do it too, can be a particularly powerful form of mem mentorship. And that was true for me. I, Before I made the commitment to become a writer, to become a showrunner, I worked in corporate America for many, many years. So you can imagine, I was the only face that looked like this <laughs> in just about every space I ever walked into. Um, so I know that intensely on the corporate America side. Uh, but I remember one night distinctly watching a show called Master of None, and Lena Waithe had an episode where she came out to her mother, Angela Bassett. And as a queer man, as a black man, I was so deeply moved. And then in short order, I watched her Emmy speech. And she said, it's a, it, it, I remember it, even though I'm going to paraphrase it terribly, she said that the thing that makes you different is your superpower. And for some reason, and that night, that cut right through to the heart. Like I had been keeping this dream uh, of being a writer in quiet for many, 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 many years. Then I saw her say that and something cut through, seeing her do this beautifully nuanced and complex story that showed us in all of our colors and complexities broke through. And I realized then like, I'm going to do that too. That was literally the marching order. So then to come back, you know, four years later and be teamed with Lena to make the show was just this beautiful full circle moment. Um, there was never a question to me about uh, centering folks who looked like me in the kinds of stories I wanted to tell. Yeah. Uh, we gain nothing from a homogenous viewpoint. <laughs> we gain nothing from not seeing all of ourselves and all of our complexity. Um, we gain no curiosity from not knowing people who don't look like us. Uh, so centering us, I don't think, and I, can, I don't wanna speak for anyone else, it wasn't even a question. 
It's just, this is how it's going to be. And we're going to keep moving it forward. Um, yeah. Good. I love that. I like, it's one of those things where I grew up in Nigeria. And so for me, TV was always very special. Like TV came on at four o'clock. So you would spend your day doing whatever. And then I would like, I would like, literally you'd be mid hug and I'm like, okay, bye. Like it's four o'clock. I got to go watch TV now. This is the rest of my day now. And so we would sit, I would sit in front of the TV and then like the national anthem would come on. And so you play the national anthem. You're like, okay, come on, come on. And then I'd watch TV. And the stuff that I would watch then was a lot of Fresh Prince, Fresh Prince travels. And it was sort of like, and so seeing these stories and there was something very sort of like, simple about them he was not they weren't complete like we it was it was the humanity in full spectrum they had ups downs and all of that so i don't think i i didn't grow up no like understanding that there were stereotypes like i didn't grow up knowing because everybody that i knew in nigeria was black and i didn't see the first white person until i was 11 years old in south africa and i was like why is he not on the tv because i just thought that's where all the white people were and so it's just sort of like so that was my frame of reference but when we emigrated to the states and i started learning all these other things it kind of i was lucky that i had that foundation like i saw black people as beautiful and valued i didn't have the traumas of what this country had created in a lot of ways. It was just sort of like, I was, I, I've, I've, over the years, I've taken on and, and engaged more in a very real sort of intimate way. But growing up, I always felt like an observer, observer of trauma, observer of that. And I was very respectful to the fact that like, I'm observing, take up, you know, let me listen and all that kind of stuff. Cause I didn't want to insert myself in something that I knew that culturally my family had not experienced. Um, but I always gravitated towards stories. And I, I, my TV watching time was in the heyday of like, soul food and like Wayne's brothers and like all the stuff that we all grew up like and all of them not no one show was the same you know what I mean and it was just sort of like you would be watching New York Undercover then you would watch you know Living Single then you would watch Family Matters and it was just sort of like here you are with a bevy of different kinds of voices and faces and styles and all of that. And then, you know, and, and so now coming full circle as a writer, I think for myself, I still kind of carry that. Like I'm, I'm on a show that is arguably, a, not even arguably, it's a white show. It's a white TV show on NBC, but we have our black characters are the ones that, you know, people out here capping for. And so it's just sort of like, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a reason for that. And so it's just sort of one of those things where it's like, it's never, I, I think part of me loves the idea of going into white spaces and just sort of like being true to, you know, self and telling stories and then just they just don't have to deal with it kind of feeling. And so it's like that's sort of how I take like on the feature side, I'll all like want to write a genre project that's not, you know, what they would think that we would be in and then everybody got to deal with it. Or like, you know, on the TV side, I always tell people, I'm like, look, if it's a book that's about Sally, who was a CIA agent who did X, Y, Z, I don't care what she looks like. I don't care what, like, just give it to me. I'll see her through my lens. And it's just sort of, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I've never, I've never, I've, because of what has been happening, I love being in white spaces, just, just pushing it in, like, just being. You know what I mean? And they just have to deal with it and have to deal with the quality of it and have to deal with the personhood of it. And if that affects them in a way, then cool. But it's like, they're going to have to deal with it. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I, <laughs> they're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think the theme for our night should be, you know, they're just going to have to deal with it. But great, great stuff from, from, from all of you. So, and and you alluded to my next question. Some of you in your in your responses, but you know, as we know, 
systemic equality and change in racial justice space is slow moving. And, you know, I was just looking at a UCLA Hollywood diversity report uh, from 2020. You know, 93% of senior executives uh, are, those executive positions are filled by white people. Uh, and so for everyone here, talk to me a little bit about the importance of having black writers and showrunners and executives uh, at the table in terms of pushing toward uh, systemic change in the racial justice space. I think it's really important. Um, the reason I was at CBS is because an executive of color, Eric Kim, who is also Korean American, I saw him at Daniel Day Kim's New Year's Eve party and right before the pandemic. And he said, I want you to come and run a CBS show. And I was like, I'm working for Netflix right now. I can't. And he was like, stay in touch with me. I want you to come and run a CBS show. And I've known Eric for years. Um, and he just kept on me. He was like, I want you to come and run a CBS show. And then we weren't sure if Hentified was going to get a season two. Our numbers weren't, you know, as great as they could have been. And so I called him. I was like, okay, what CBS show do you want me to come run? So he was like, I'll get back to you. But it was because an executive of color was a dog with a bone and wanted to recruit a showrunner of color. It was, it, it was a priority for him. And he, you know, he said, look, some people, there are two ways to fight for change inside the system and outside the system. And he is like, I am someone who fights for change inside the system. And it, they're both important. You need both. And so, and it's because of Eric, who I've known for a really long time through NetCal Network for Korean American Leaders. And there were both co-founders of Korean American Leaders in Hollywood because I trusted him. He's a good friend. And I was like, okay, what do you got? And that's how the meeting, that's how I got the meeting on MacGyver, but it was an executive of color. So, and, and I, you know, He's always my first call when I have a question about something because I know he will give me the inside studio perspective about something where other yeah. people might tiptoe around it. He's like, no, I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, and and it's, it's so important, especially in development, you know, when it comes to wow. development and the, and the projects that are chosen. Um, you know, there's a project that I have with the studio and you know there was an executive shuffle and I was like wait a minute is the Korean executive still going to be on the project because if not <laughs> we're going to lose our ally in the room and the producer was like don't worry about that don't worry I was like but it's about a Korean family I have to worry about that because that POV is so distinct I need someone fighting for that voice in the room so I don't get the notes that are crazy, you know, when it comes from an outsider looking into a culture, right. I need that direct person that I can interface with. Yeah, so really powerful. That's so true. That the ally on the inside is huge. And like when you first asked the question, Dara, I was thinking like, oh, you know, it's yes and no, because it's sort of like if you have an empathetic ear in the room anywhere you're sort of like even if the person doesn't understand it might be great but then I'm like what am I talking about I have like this overall deal that I have I'm just like I only talk to Aaron so it's just sort of like it's like <laughs> I'll bet like like I don't you just naturally gravitate towards someone who has a shorthand with you and if they end up they happen to be the the black executive they happen to be the Korean executive it's just kind of like a natural sort of we're speaking the same language and also we tend to 
it's interesting. We tend to give things like I'll say, like I just finished watching Lena's third season of, of Master of None. And it's just sort of like we tend to see ourselves in a way that white people sometimes can't see us. So it's like there are executives who are in the room that are black who are just sort of like, oh, yeah, we're good on those kind of stories. Like, let's, you know, they'll they'll let you kind of play around and kind of skirt the thing. I'm doing a thing right now about a th like and it's like a thing that would have never come to me if like because so many of the projects that came to me at first when this deal started were like the first black lady to ever brush her teeth, the first black lady to ever, you know, it was just like all this stuff. I was like. <laughs> I was like, you don't want to watch this. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, no one wants this. So it's like all of these stories that like, I don't know, I, I guess they're important. I don't know. But it's just like having that ally in the room, be able to say like, bro, don't even bring that to me. We're going to have a problem. They're able to see us and see you and all of that kind of stuff in the way that you want to be seen. That isn't sort of pigeonholing you in a way. So that, yeah, that's valuable. Yeah. And like, I didn't realize until I worked on an all black show, how much time I was spending explaining the pitch before I would pitch both in the room and pitching shows. And I always think of, this is funny, but it's also crazy. I pitched a show one time, which nobody wanted to buy, um, where the lead character was bisexual. And I'm telling the story of how she had a crush on this guy. So she got a job at his job and then met his wife and started to fall in love with the wife. And the note comes back, I don't understand. She loves him and then she loves her. Yeah, she's bisexual. She loves people of different genders. And they're like, so does she love men or women? Like she's bisexual. <laughs> so both of those things. And it, the note came back so many times that the, the project just went away because they just like couldn't understand. And I was like having one person in the room who had met a queer before would have changed that whole conversation. And when you're trying to pitch a whole story or a whole series, if you have to stop every time to explain, well, there's this thing that we do, there's this, like, it just takes time away from the momentum of your pitch. And it makes it so much harder to not have someone who has some experience with what it is you're talking about. It's also just so time consuming to like decipher. I don't want to be a mood ring. Like I don't want to have to like decipher for you. Uh, I think everything that was said here is beautiful. The only thing I would add is that I would absolutely watch the first black woman to brush her teeth. <laughs> Look, it's I, I gonna happen and Ashley's gonna do it. <laughs> it's, it's, when they put these products together, they just go to every black person that's ever written anything. <laughs> you don't even care about my perspective. This is ridiculous. <laughs> That could be deep, though. I would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who, 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 who knows? But, but so it, it, again, I mean, all interesting perspective. And let me let me kind of continue along that the line of that previous question. And Monica, I'm going to ask you because I, I think I was uh, looking at a Washington Post article uh, from July 2020. You were quoted in it, and it talked about the notion of TV writers. Uh, kind of being there as diversity decoration. You know, you're called on to write for the black person. You're called on to raise the flag if there's some racial thing that uh, might uh, be seen as insensitive. So does that talk to me a little bit about whether that feels like you're being pigeonholed in? How have you dealt with those kind of challenges, diversity decoration or being perceived as that in the room? Sure. I mean, so I, I got in through the Fox diversity program 
And then I got staffed. I didn't get staffed on a Fox show. I got my first job was on Lost the first season. And I was paid through the diversity program, even though I wasn't part of their diversity program. And I know I got the job because I half black and half Korean, because there was a moment in the meeting where, you know, you go to these meetings and they ask you about yourself. And I was a writer's assistant on 24 and the showrunner and the number two were huge fans of 24. So I have a half hour meeting to pitch myself for the job. 20 minutes, we talked about 24. I was like, I'm not going to get this job. My whole internal monologue, me and Jesus, I was like, Lord, I need you to help. I don't know what's going to happen. Finally, they're like, tell us about yourself. And I said, well, you know, I watched the pilot. I really related to Walt and Rose and Michael, the three African-American characters. And I related to the kid because he moved around a lot. And then I was like, and then, you know, I'm also half Korean. So Sun and Jin, and they're like, you're half Korean. Like, it's kind of like a secret. Nobody ever knows. And in that moment, they looked at each other and I was like, I think I got this because you really are. They're trying to check boxes in terms of representation in the room and wells that you can draw from. And I knew in that moment when they looked at each other, they were like, son, Jen, Rose, Michael and Walt. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and in a staff writer who's not going to cost them anything because the diversity program is going to pay for my salary. So I knew that's why I was there. It was a very large room, very hierarchical, a lot of, you know, supervising co-EPs ahead of me. I'm a little staff writer. It's like the army in TV. I was the private at the table. I had to wait for the lull in the room to speak. But when they brought up Sun and Jin, and here's the difference too, with African-American culture, I think people think they can write us. They can write our voice because black culture is American culture and rap music is American music and but when it came to the Koreans, honey, they were like, what do you think, Monica? Like the whole room would stop and people would turn to me and it gave me this little realm of authority because nobody in the room had a Korean mom, had Korean relatives. My, my family literally crawled over the mountains of Northern Korea into Southern Korea because they had to escape. And that was a story that I told in the media and they were like, really? So it gave me a realm of authority. And growing yeah. up in this country, being biracial and being from two very different cultures that are oddly very similar in a lot of ways, gave me a distinct point of view that nobody else could sort of capture. So that, that, that quote that you mentioned, little Marvin, about the, the thing being your superpower, that like that unique thing, yeah. it was like growing up, it was like, I always wanted to be like, I want to be more black or I want to be more Asian or I want to fit in more. It was like, that, was, that became my superpower. And I realized like that that had power like that nobody else could access in that room. And so it was my job to speak up. And yeah. there became a moment when, you know, they were going to kill, I, I I've told the story a million times and Daniel Day Kim just told it in a, in a, I think an article that, that he just did, but they wanted to kill Daniel off the island because he didn't speak English. And I was like, mm -mm that's racist no 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 and people were like what do you mean that's racist it's like it's it's limiting the stories that we can tell and like we don't understand him you have to read subtitles and i can say no that's racist we can't do it and there was another writer of color upper level supervising producer javier grio marks watch puerto rican and he was like yeah that's racist and then at the end of the day he pulled me aside and he said here you can't say that anymore you're becoming the race police. Stop saying that. Go home and think about why we can't kill Jen off the island from a story perspective. 
He said, I can say it. I'm a supervising producer. I have had other jobs and I will have other jobs. So I went home, I did the research and I was like, oh, if we kill Jen off the island, he's the only half of a married couple on this island. So we can't play love triangle stories. We can't play jealousy. We can't play any of that. So I came back the next day. I told Javi, we strategized outside of the room. I'm going to say it's racist after you say that. So I would say, hey, guys, if we kill Jen off the island, we can't play love triangle stories. They're the only married couple. We can't play the possibility of infidelity. We can't play jealousy. Everyone's like, oh, I never thought about that. And then Javi would be like, and it's racist. So it's like I felt a responsibility to speak up. And that is part of your job. That's why you get the position. But there's a fine line politically that you have to walk because you don't want to be the race police or the no-no bird at the table saying, you can't do that. You can't do this. Sometimes you have to approach it from story. Yeah. And, and being the race police probably pigeonholes you even more into that yeah. box, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's transition a little bit and uh, talk about the on-screen representation of Black people. We've, we've, we've uh, talked a little bit about it in the comments already. Uh, and I'm going to direct this at little Marvin. Uh, you've mentioned uh, admiring the 1960s, 1970s domestic thrillers. And then you talked about Carrie and Rosemary's Baby. And those things kept me up when I was a, a kid, just having, having watched them. Uh, and in those, really seeing no central characters who were Black. So talk a little bit about uh, the impact of representation to you in an on-screen perspective and how important it is to have characters of color as central figures uh, in the script, rather as uh, tertiary props of being the maid here or the butler there. It's everything, Uh, particularly as a lover of horror since I was a kid. um, All of those films you mentioned and more, um, you don't really realize when you're a kid that by not seeing yourself, you're being subtly and not so subtly erased from every single thing that you love. Here was something that I absolutely loved and I never saw myself. So what you're actually being told is you can love these things, but you're not of these things, right? And you don't know that. And and so there's been this push pull with me with horror. Here I am a lifelong lover of Hitchcock, but as you mentioned, name those movies, where are we? We are the maid, we're the housekeeper, we're the butler, we're the shoeshine boy. And at the center of the frame is Grace Kelly, is Jimmy Stewart, is Eva Marie Saint, is Janet Leigh. We're never there. And I think one of the most um, rewarding and I mean, honestly, I would I would just sit at the monitor, frankly, and that the cast and the crew can attest for this. I would just sob at the monitor because here at the center of this classic Hitchcock frame that we were paying homage to comes Deborah Iorinde, uh, where Eva Marie Saint would have been. Here's Ashley Thomas, where Jimmy Stewart would have been. And that's an incredibly cathartic and powerful thing in a way that I didn't even, um, I hadn't even contended with how emotional it would be actually to see it, but in a way it's healing that little kid who never saw himself. So for me, it's it's everything, particularly in uh, the genre that I'm in. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, well received. Uh, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, Ashley, obviously you're dealing with the much different genre. You've mentioned it before uh, than, than Marvin and, and, and what he's working on with them. But I'm sure that you still grapple with some of those same issues and challenges as they relate to, to race. So given the exhaustion that I referenced uh, post-George Floyd, 
Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, the issues around policing, voting rights, and all of those negative impact issues on communities of color. Talk to us a little bit about how what you do in the sketch comedy uh, space helps provide some, uh, you know, uh, relief from some of that exhaustion. Yeah, I really feel like I come at it from all sides. So like during the pandemic, I worked on a Black Lady Sketch show, Ted Lasso and the Amber Ruffin show. So it was like three more different shows don't exist, but each has a piece of what I feel like the landscape needs. So on the Amber Ruffin show, we are doing these pieces called How Did We Get Here? Where we take a current event and go back in history and sort of explain how history repeats itself and how American history has led us to this moment, but in a very funny way. And Amber is the sweetest, bubbliest person in the world. So when she's talking about how the filibuster has been white supremacist since <laughs> the beginning of time, you're just like, oh, she's so lovely. And you don't even realize that you're getting a seven minute long history lesson on a comedy show, which is insane. Uh, only her voice allows us to get away with that. And then on the other side, you have Black Lady Sketch Show, where we do not deal with topicality or current events at all. We finished writing that season before we knew that COVID existed. Um, and it's pure joy. It's pure um, hoping that people feel seen through the characters, relatability, pure relationships, universality. We actually do some horror on that show. Um, and then working on shows like Ted Lasso, where it's just like sweet. And it's just, um, I think both, all three of those shows are about um, the reason I'm attracted to them is my personal project as an artist is creating empathy. And um, there have been studies that show that people actually can get better at empathy and you practice by doing things like reading novels and watching television uh, because you put yourself into the shoes of that protagonist and you feel as they feel. That's why horror is such a powerful genre because your heart beats faster when they do. You literally are living as a character, but we have so much practice as a culture of empathizing with white men because they are often the protagonists of these stories. And we practice and we practice and we practice that muscle. And so we will need, you know, 200 years of black people, black women, queer people, people of color being the protagonists of stories to work our empathy muscle up for different kinds of people. And so that's what I feel like my personal project has been you know, maybe on a late night show, you're doing it by educating people to the culture on a sketch show. You're doing it by playing a bunch of different characters and showing how one body can do so many different things on a show like Ted Lasso. You're tricking people into thinking they're watching a soccer show and then they're meeting these amazing female characters and characters of color. Um, yeah. But it's like, how many different ways can we just come at creating empathy for different groups of people? Love that. Love that. So, so Kay, let me ask you this, and your, your background is a little bit like mine, I, just looking at your bio, I'm a journalism major by discipline and actually went into my first job at the Associated Press, and, uh, you know, I think you studied journalism in Pittsburgh, went on to the Nightly News, and then on to the Today Show, so you were in that news space, and uh, then were encouraged to pursue graduate studies at Southern Cal, uh, but in the news space, I think I read that you found yourself sort of uh, bound by this thing called journalistic integrity. And so that you wanted to sort of influence the end of the story, right? And then the journalistic integrity didn't allow you to do that. So talk to us a little bit about how uh, you are now in the entertainment space 
sort of fully and able to sort of change those uh, outcomes and write that ending uh, with the work that you're doing in a way in which you were not necessarily able to do fully in the journalistic space. Yeah, I like I worked on so many sad stories and it's sort of like I I was uh, like 21, 22, 23. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm working in New York. I've got this job. They gave me like $50,000 worth of equipment. I'm sitting on the train going to Queens at, you know, 3 a.m. And I'm just sort of like, it's either me or these camera equipment. The, the camera equipment's got to go. And so it's just sort of like and, and I would cover like. I, I had my like I had a police blotter in my apartment. I sort of I was a, what they call like a one man band. Like I was just sort of like there the minute anything happened, I would be on the hot desk every single night. And just like if someone got stabbed, I would be the person calling their parents being like, would you like to give us a statement? Or like so it, there were just so many things that I did that I just felt so like just overwhelmed by sadness. Like it was just an overwhelmingly sad job. And I'm not very, I am, it's hard for me to desensitize. I'm not a very like easily desensitizable person. I'm a child of God. So I feel everything very intensely. The Holy Spirit is always like, and so I'm, I'm, I, you just sort of, and so I was just sort of like, I would want to always give them a happy ending as like a person who loves movies. I'd want to give someone a happy ending, bring them joy or anything like that. And it's a lot of times with the news, whenever I watch stuff like newsroom, I used to watch that a lot or or morning show like I, it's so it feels more like Nightcrawler like that's what my like I, I watched that movie and I was triggered in such an intense way because it's like this is the job this was it and it was just sort of like you're at someone's worst day ever and there's nothing you can do because you're not supposed to do anything you're just supposed to get the facts and it's if it's sadder it's better if it's more tragic it's better you need to get the shot of them crying you need to get the shot of the house on fire you need to get the shot of them asking asking where their child is, like you need to. And it was just sort of like, it was very stressful in a way. I'm like 23, I'm like, I can't do it. I'd eat cake for dinner. It was just like all this stuff. I was just overwhelmed all the time. And so I think for me coming into the TV space and coming into sort of narrative spaces, I am drawn to a happy ending. I am terrified of horror movies, so God bless y'all. I am drawn to just sort of like, I'm just like, I want them to be happy. I want them to be joy filled. I want people to like, get the guy, get the girl, get the guy and the girl. I want them to sort of like have that thing that they wanted from the beginning of the movie happen at the end of the movie. It's just sort of like, because it's like, I've just seen firsthand on a consistent basis, people's like worst days. Like I had to call the one of the Chilean miners like daughter. It was nuts. Like it was just such a weird job, but it was just sort of like, you're just delivering bad news all the time. And I was like, I'm not, I don't want to do this forever. And so that's, yeah. 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 I used to say when I was in uh, news, if it bleeds, it leads. And so your point about it being sad and, and pathetic, let's aim a camera at it. And that does become a difficult uh, place to be. Well, and then working in late night is take that news that you made and make it make funny. It funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, God. Yeah, right. I'm, I'll, I'll get on that, right? So actually, the conversation, we're almost up to the final couple of minutes, interestingly enough. So let me just kind of do a quick round robin final question. And it really touches on what Kay just said. It's about wanting to create joy. So I just mentioned the sort of exhaustion in the space, the, the way in which uh, Black communities are facing rollbacks and voting rights and, you know, all of the issues around policing, given all of that. Uh, with each of you, just just give us some final parting 
thoughts on what you hope to do or what you can do or will do in uh, the storytelling space that can help make things feel more optimistic, feel more positive, feel more um, hopeful in this really tough post-George uh, Floyd environment? I'm so the wrong person to ask that question. <laughs> I'm like, what? This is how we're ending? That's not my job. <laughs> I don't do that. I have nothing to add to that question. <laughs> good. That's so, did you say the thing that's on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> truly, I mean, truly, here's the thing. There is, there are a lot, I understand that and I get it and I get joy as an imperative. And by the way, I love joyful things too. I'm not just sitting around watching morose things all day. I love joy. I'm watching Great British Bake Off because it makes me feel good. I'm watching Ted Lasso because it's like a weighted blanket for my soul. I love joy. That said, we also have to level the playing field in every space. I refuse to believe as a horror writer, you know, you get criticism. We don't want to see that because it's dark. Well, as a person who loves this thing, how are we ever going to get equity within this thing if we're not able to paint with every single color in the in in the crayon box? So like as much as I love joy, I also have to make space for all these other permutations of stories that folks want to see. Because just as equally as people want to see those happy stories, I know for a fact there is a massive horror fan base out there who is looking for that dark shit. And I want to give that to them because I love it too. So I, I say like all the colors is how I would answer that if that's an answer at all because i'm i'm not the one to ask about joy <laughs> no, no i mean that, that makes perfect sense that makes perfect okay. sense you're like <laughs> little marvin i wanted to know what you were going to say as well uh, i know i know you were all like how is he going to speak about joy i saw his show anyone else yeah i oh you know you go um I don't know about optimism because I think we're not in an optimistic time. Things are bad and scary. What I can offer you as an artist is the feeling that you're not alone in that. You're scared. I'm scared too. <laughs> you could turn on the TV and see me be there with you. Um, I think that we can be um, clear headed about what is going on and how it makes us feel as people. And also I do agree with the idea that I remember I had a meeting once very early in my career and they were like, what do you want to see on TV? And I was like, I want to see a fat black woman sitting on her couch eating Cheetos. And then she like gets up and does a murder or something. It was like, that's crazy. It was like, but we make black characters have to be so perfect or so kind or so whatever. I want to star in Breaking Bad. One of y'all write me a Breaking Bad. <laughs> I, I want to see you. Bad. I want to see you in Breaking Bad, by the way. You would crush it in Breaking Bad. Yes, I watched Black Lady Sketch, though. And I feel like... The, the I, invisible I, CIA. Yeah? No, yeah. the invisible CIA. <laughs> we got it. So, yeah, I do think that, like, optimism and joy are important. Being clear-headed and being rational about what is actually happening is important. And I do think that showing all facets of us is important. Sometimes we're joyful and sometimes we're not. But let's be honest and let's be real. And I think that that is what Black artists can do better than anybody else because we live this. Yeah. Monica, Kay, any speed round in our final minute or so? Monica, answer? 
I, I really want to keep creating opportunities for writers of color to have a seat at the table as a showrunner. I, you know, I've been in rooms where people are like, we just couldn't find any black writers. I'm like, what? Here, let me give you my phone. I'll find 20 for you right now. I just want to keep create, you know, keep coming against that myth that we don't exist when it comes to writers of color who are qualified. There are so many people trying to break in at the bottom. And it's like when I was staffing Queen Sugar season two, could not find an upper level black woman. You know why? Because not enough of us had matriculated through the system to the upper level positions. No, you know, everyone's trying to help the diversity staff writer and then maybe story editor because we're free and therefore we are not seen as valuable when it is exact opposite. That's why you can't get an upper level black woman now. And that was in 2016 and now it's 2021 and it's even harder because we have not done the work as a community, as the entertainment system. There's a lot of um, effort put into recruitment and not retention. It's yeah. the same problem that happens in the university system. So I want to keep creating spaces for writers of color to have a seat at the table so that our stories can be centered. Kay, why don't you close this out? Quick, quick 30, 30 second optimist, optimist, joy. All I that. am. Those, I'm not even good Look, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Honestly, the truth of the matter is I, I, I find value in so many brilliant people. You put together such a dope panel. I think everyone is so talented and I love the fact that everyone gets to tell their stories. I totally agree with Ashley about like painting with the brush, like, like not painting, not even just painting with the brush, being able to be the bad version of us, the good version of us, the complicated version of us, the murderous version of us, the hero version of us. I think we should be allowed to do, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I just think that growing us in that space, like I'm basically synthesizing what everyone was saying, growing people in that space so they can have a little Marvin kind of experience where they're paired with someone who can actually let them be their first time showrunner and then like, you know, matriculate in that way. I just think that more opportunity, more diversity of stories, just let like, I was about to say the N word, let people do what they want to do. I, I just want to say thank you so much for the insights and the perspectives. It's been great. Uh, and this has been a great panel and great discussion. So I appreciate you being with us. Round of applause, everyone. And we'll close it out. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ATX TV's original series, The TV Campfire. To watch these panels and more, please visit youtube.com backslash ATX TV. For details on the festival, go to atxfestival.com. And information on our membership program can be found at atxfestival.com backslash membership. Follow us at ATX Festival on all social media. As always, please rate and review. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And a simple click or brief comment can help us grow and have other TV lovers like yourselves find us. Feels like enough information, right? Yep. Till next time, keep watching TV.